0: Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte from Evidence for Faith, and we're doing something a little different on the podcast today. We are currently in the Florida Keys with our marine biology program. It is a marine biology course with an apologetics focus. And we decided instead of leaving you guys hanging for like 10 days, two weeks, that we would record the apologetics side of this course and share it with you guys online. Now the Marine Biology Program is an experience for students 14 and up. If you'd like to learn more about this program, you can actually check out the links in the description or go to evidenceforfaith.org slash marinebiology or click on the events tab. But before we jump into things today, I would like to thank our sponsors who have made this trip possible. We have Lapota Enterprises, John and Abigail Lapota, Marv and Joey Susan, Michael and Denise Lane, Caleb and April Williams, Stitch It Custom Embroidery, and so much more, who provide a lot of the t shirts and merchandise that we do for this trip. And finally, Bezalel Crafts, the Anderson family. So with that, enjoy today's podcast.
1: Well, we are on our last uh, written session that we have here as we've had to make some adjustments in our timing here because of the rains and stuff that hit us. But as we go into this lesson tonight, now we've covered in the, this series called What's Going On, from the beginning, how God created things, how man messed it up, how God fixed it, the pivotal point in human history, Jesus Christ coming, how He died to uh, redeem us, how He rose again, To give us eternal life. And then he arose back up into heaven. And um, as we saw last night, a lot of things going on right now that, wow, it's sort of strange. I was just reading before coming over here in the Jerusalem paper about how uh, they were, um, uh, a news group was interviewing some uh, Muslims up on the Temple Mount and um, asking them how they, they feel about what's going on with the Jews all coming in, like what I talked about last night. And they said, we're very afraid that the Jews are going to kick us off this mount and try and build their temple. That was really interesting because we just talked about that. But tonight, um, what we're going to do, so we, we uh, are going to be looking at, none of this really makes a lot of sense unless there's some evidence for the Bible. Now, a lot of people have taken like the resurrection as we looked at There's no other logical explanation when you look at um, the story of Jesus' resurrection outside that it definitely happened. And that he definitely lived and he definitely died. Those things happen. And so some people can go with that and they have the faith for that. But there are some people in the world today that just, they need more. People like from Missouri, (laughs) like, show me uh type attitudes and stuff and we come across people like that you will come across people like that maybe some of you listening are people like that and so some people require a little bit more evidence than uh just out of the word of god and stuff and that's fine that's one of the reasons evidence for faith exists is to show evidence that's the whole thing evidence that exists to help in your faith and one of my favorite topics to go into and to talk on. And our website has a lot of these, has to do with archeology. span And tonight we're gonna look at some, just a few, just a couple of, uh, I shouldn't say a couple, that means like two. My wife always points out to me, never say a couple when you mean, you know, several. But we're gonna look at a few several. (laughs) A bunch, there we go, I don't know what's in a bunch. Uh, We're gonna look at a bunch, (laughs) that sounds real good. Um, of supporting evidence for the truth that the Bible is real. And it's in the field of archaeology. I love when people come up to me and they say, science has disproved the Bible. And I, I, I say, have you ever heard of the, the science of archaeology? Because there has never been one provable archaeological discovery that disproves the Bible. Not one where there have been tens of thousands maybe even more than just tens, might be into the hundreds for all I know now, um, of discoveries that support the Bible, that these things really happen. So tonight, we're gonna look at some of these. Now, if you're really into this, I've written two books, you can order them on Amazon, um, The Stones Bear Witness, and uh, real catchy second title, More Stones Bear Witness. (laughs) Yeah, boy, am I creative. And then we're writing a third book on this, Even more stones, bear witness. Boy, am I creative. Uh, But anyway, we're looking at doing, uh, we're still doing this stuff. And we just went to Israel a couple of months ago and we filmed even some segments and everything like that is appearing on our website. And I go to places and I speak at many uh, conferences and, and churches and schools and stuff on this. So tonight, let's just take a look. Just, I know most of you have never seen or heard of some of these discoveries, but let me just show you what has been documented, and you can't really refute this because it's there, and you can go and you can see these, or you can go to the places you can see it, you can go to um, museums and see these things, but let me take you to a couple of these things here. First one I want to talk about is Joshua's altar. In um, Joshua chapter 8, God commands Joshua to build an altar on Mount Ebel. Now, I know most of you have no idea where Mount Ebel is. Mount Ebel is right across the valley from, there's a valley in between between Mount Ebel and Mount Gerizim. It's where the woman at the well, down at the base of that mountain is Sychar, and that's where the woman at the well met with Jesus. And Mount uh, Gerizim is what the Samaritans thought was where uh, the temple should be built, and that's where God should be worshiped, instead of at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so in Joshua, he gives on that mountain, the people are assembled on that mountain, and God gives blessings to the people. And then just right across that mountain is Mount Ebal. That's called the Mount of Curses. And God proclaims curses for anybody of the people of Israel, anybody who, who disobeys or doesn't believe or breaks their the laws of God and stuff like this. Well, in the 1970s, a guy by the name of Adam Zertal, an archaeologist, he's now dead, he died just a couple of years ago. Um, Adam Zertal went up on Mount Ebel to look around because there's not not been uh, at that time in the 1970s any uh, archaeology done up there. And there's just a pile of stones all over the place. He started digging through the stones, and as he did this, he found something. And there's a picture of it there that I've given you. I'm giving you little pictures of these. And what you're seeing here is actually an, an altar. It's a huge altar. God told him to line it in plaster and then to write the law on it. That would be like the book of Deuteronomy. In the plaster is this thing hardened up on top of this mountain. And in Joshua 8:30, Joshua is commanded to build this altar adam zertal found it in 1970 and israelis go up there in large groups and stuff even to this day as they did archaeology around here um, around the the site they found out it's huge like what what the bible would um, at that time altars and stuff were made and it wasn't just a little pile of rocks we're talking a very very large altar here and he also, Adam Zertal, found that the, this altar, he didn't know what he had at first. It took a long time for him to figure out what it was. He thought it was a, First he thought it was a house, then he thought it was a, some type of a fort or something. Finally, a Jewish rabbi explained to him that this is an altar, it was a friend of his, and he was like, oh my gosh, that story in the Bible is true. And it was even plastered, just like the Bible says. And they found that there. Also, at that same spot, Adam Zertal, as they were digging through this thing and digging out this altar from the ruins over times, because this dates back to the 1400s. The 1400s is what the Bible says. When the Bible says Joshua came into the promised land, was right around the year 1400 BC, give or take like five or 10 years. But that was the time period it came in. And that's in the biblical record in the book of first kings chapter six uh solomon um, is building the temple and in this description in chapter six it says um it is written down that um, solomon built the temple 480 years after the exodus took place well um If uh, Solomon built the temple, and we know what year, roughly, he built it around 960 B.C. If you go back, add 480 years to this, remember, it's like negative numbers. It's B.C. You're going back. It takes you right around 1400 B.C. So this fits the time frame of this whole story. And when they were digging there, they found, Adam Zertal found this little tiny piece. They're looking through all little pieces of rock, and they came across a little hard, um, little thing. You can see the size of it even there. That's in... Um, uh, centimeters, it's only a couple of centimeters big. It's not very big, it's a small little thing. Looks like square, sort of a flat wafer. Um, But they realized this is not stone, it was lead. It was very heavy. And if you notice in the bottom picture I'm giving you there, it's got a crack that goes along uh, the longitudinal section. What this is, is an amulet. It was a piece of lead that had been folded out like a book It is inscribed, there is writing in here, and then someone folded it over. Now, on Mount Ebal, that's the Mount of Curses, and God is proclaiming to Joshua and to the people curses for not following his law. Someone made a little amulet, and they wrote what God was saying here, and this little amulet actually has the proper name, the holy name of Adonai. The, The true God is actually on this thing. And it dates back also to um, to the time about 1400 BC, the same age as um, Joshua's altar there. And even though this was discovered back in the 1970s, they didn't know what it was, they just sort of left it. In uh, 2022, just a year ago, this made the news um, in academia, In the springtime, because they found this thing and they were able to see what was written inside of it, and it fits what God's word says in here. It was a major discovery. Looking at another thing that Joshua did, we know that Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho and the walls fell, et cetera, et cetera. Now, according to skeptics and stuff, the year that this happened would have been um, not around 1400 BC. They say it's all wrong. That that is not the right time, thus the Bible is incorrect. Matter of fact, you go to any major university, just about, and you study archaeology, they will teach you that the Bible um, story of Jericho did not take place. It was not the Israelites who did it or anything, and it wasn't even in the right time period. Well, the thing is, in historical cases, there are ways of dating something. And one of the best ways to date that archaeologists use to date things is pottery. Pottery are like cars different models from different cultures and different time periods. You can look, there are archeologists that can take a piece of pottery, ancient pottery, and it can tell you not only where it was made, what country it came from, but what culture made it and at what rough time did they make this? Just like we would look at a car today and say the model and the make and the year, just by looking at it. You don't have to look at the manufacturer's guide. You can look and see, oh, this is a 57 Chevy. So just certain things like that about pottery. And the thing is, they found in the 1930s an archaeologist by the name of uh, Garstang. He was a British archaeologist. I don't think he was a Christian, but he definitely was taken aback by what he discovered digging at Jericho. He found that the walls had fallen out. He found that on one side of the city, the wall did not fall. You know the story of Rahab. Rahab? Um, her house was built in the wall, and it did not fall. And Garstang found a whole section of a wall that did not fall. Um, and then in the night, he also found something else there. He found, and this is a picture of what he found, it's broken pieces of pottery. Now you might be thinking, oh, okay, he found broken pieces of pottery, big deal. It's the artwork on here and the style that it is made and what it's made of tells us that this is called, it's a type of pottery called Cypriot Pottery, which, if it's in Jericho, When the Walls Fell fits the time frame of about 1400, again showing that the Bible is real, that the story of Jericho really did take place. Another dig was recently done there by Dr. Bryant Wood. He too found Cypriot pottery there. And so that does seem to fit the biblical story very well. These things really happen. Also concerning Jericho, Joshua um, was told by God Um, to tell the Israelites that when they take this city, it's a sacrifice, um, a first fruits offering, if you will, to God. They were not allowed to keep any of the relics or souvenirs. Um, The gold, the bronze, and the silver were to be put into the treasury. Everything else was to be burned. They're marching in from the desert, They have um, not been having the best food and stuff like this by what they were used to in Egypt. They've been eating manna for a long time and stuff. They come into this city at the harvest time. It tells us in Joshua that the city was conquered at the height of the harvest season. And they were told, do not take the harvest, but to burn the harvest. And as they excavated uh, Garstang, Kathleen Kenyon in the 1950s, uh, Bryant Wood in the 1990s, they have found hundreds of clay pots, like you see in the picture here, large clay pots filled with grain that had been burnt. In other words, this city was not conquered by starvation, which is the, at that time, there weren't battering rams to conquer cities. They hadn't been invented yet. The way you conquered a city basically was to surround it and starve it uh, into submission or cut off its water supply. Well, they had springs right in uh, in the city, so that wasn't gonna help. But this city was conquered with all of the food in there. Whoever conquered this city, all critics agree, whoever conquered the city didn't take any of the food. They burned it. But who would do that? Any other culture, if you conquer a city, you're going to take the the food out to feed your army and stuff. But that was not the case. In this case, all of the food was burned. This is very Very unique, very rare for something like this to happen. Yet hundreds and hundreds of clay pots have been found with burnt grain in them. This only makes sense if the biblical story is true, because Joshua was told, do not take any of the food, you burn it all. And that's exactly what they found. After Joshua conquered Jericho, he moves northward in his book. We get to Joshua chapter 11. He goes after the Canaanite capital. Jericho is not that big of a place but he goes up to, uh, in northern, um, up by Galilee, there was a large Canaanite city there, huge city for this time period, gigantic city. And that was the, uh, the city of Hazor, looks like Hazor. Hazor was the capital of that land that God promised Abraham. Joshua goes to conquer it. And in doing so, he is told to burn it. And according to scripture, If you go there, and it's one of my favorite places to go in Israel, I love to go there and look at tours and stuff. There's an ash layer at that city in the ruins of the city dating back to that time period that you can see this city was burned. Not only that, the picture I'm showing you here is pictures of inside the palace. These are basalt stones. Basalt is an igneous rock, and the thing is for it to crack like that, I've asked many geologists, how can you get a rock to crack like that? And they said it takes intense heat. These are rocks that have been exposed to very, very high heat. And this was in a place where they stored olive oil um, in the palace, and they had other things. It was a cedar palace and stuff, and it all caught on fire. It sits high on a hill, so it's got a nice breeze to feed all of this um, the fuel that they have there in the city burned and that is evidence it's all around the city you can see this place was burned not only that God told the Israelites when you come into the land there were a lot of idols and stuff there and he commands them you do not take the idols you are to destroy the idols now the way that you would do it is like today we might just throw it in a garbage can that's not the way they did it in ancient times to deface an idol uh, one of the most common ways of doing it was to cut the head off of the idol and cut the hands and the feet off. It was like proclaiming a curse. What's really interesting, as I said, Hatsor was a capital city. And agriculture, as we talked about last night, in ancient Israel, it was an agricultural place. And it was in the crossroads between the Hittites and Turkey, Egypt to the south, and to the east was the Babylonians. It's right in the crossroads, and Hatsor sits on the major highway. So, all you ha- what you have in ancient time are all these ancient cultures have representatives, or shall we say, ambassadors there. These ambassadors come and they bring their idols. So Hatso would have idols from the Amorites, the Amalekites, the uh, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Egyptians, the Chaldeans. They would have all of these idols there, and they have found these. But the odd thing about these idols, They've all been mutilated. There's a picture here of one with the head cut off. The feet were broken. Archaeologists sort of like fastened them back together. The hands were cut off. And there's just so many idols that um, these pictures here from the Israel Museum, there's so many idols that have been found there that they have mutilated. Many of them having their head cut off. There was even another sphinx. We know the Egyptian sphinx down in in Egypt. People love to go there and see it. There was another sphinx that was in Hatsor, and it was broken up and mutilated. Well, who would do that? The Egyptians wouldn't mutilate their own gods. The Hittites wouldn't mutilate their own gods. The Chaldeans wouldn't mutilate their own gods. The uh, Philistines wouldn't mutilate their own gods. The Canaanites would not mutilize their own gods. The Amorites, the Amalekites would not mutilate their own gods. What culture would possibly do it? There's only one, the Hebrew people. And it was commanded to do this, and you see evidence of that. So, Fascinating thing having to do with that. Let's move to another thing. Um, archaeologists were digging down in the Gaza Strip area. There's a city there called Gaza, thus the name Gaza Strip. And in Gaza, archaeologists a while back, not that long ago, were excavating what they found was a Philistine temple. Now, this was really interesting. This temple dates back to the period of time that the book of Judges is taking place. And in this temple, the the, the structure and the design of this temple showed that the basic uh, roof holding the whole temple and everything that this temple was supported by was all just on two stone columns, two columns. And the columns, there's a picture over here, and I put a yellow circle around it. The columns are close together. Like you can big guy could put his hand on one and put his hand on the other now if you will go back into the book of judges and if you read chapter 16 21 through 30 about the death of samson samson was captured by the philistines he was brought to gaza he was brought into the temple of dagon uh, of the philistines and he died by putting his hands against these pillars and pushing them and the whole place collapsed this a lot of people said that's just a mythical story this temple is set up exactly as that story tells us. Now, Samson's body was not found there because the scriptures tell us that um, some uh, godly Jews came and took his body and they buried it. But the temple structure is exactly what the Bible says it was supposed to look like. And as we were talking a little bit yesterday, another archeological discovery that took place in uh, 1979, they found this little tiny pomegranate. I have a copy of one. We have this on our website even. It's a little small pomegranate made of ivory. It has writing on it. This was discovered in Jerusalem, and it had, what it is, it's a pomegranate ornament, a piece of ivory that would have been at the end of a stick, about a cubit. In other words, the length of your arm from your fingers to your elbow, about that length, and it would have been at the end, and it would have been something that priests would walk around with it was just a little symbol thing that they would walk with the the stick is long gone but this ivory pomegranate is still there if you look carefully at the picture you will see there is writing inscribed on this and the writing is so interesting because it's in english it's reading belonging to the temple of the lord that's adonai uh both uh, are holy to the priests so they have found this it's on display in a museum, um, and this is evidence that not only did the temple di- did exist, because this is mentioning the temple, and it dates back to the Old Testament period, but also that there was indeed a Jewish temple. The Jews were living there in Jerusalem, and they did have a temple. Muslims today say no, they never had a temple there, and they claim the Temple Mount is their holy site. the Jews they say should not have any access to it. Well, the Jews say, hey, <laughs> we got evidence we had a temple here. Look at the next thing. This was discovered in 1997. It's called the Temple Ostracon. An Ostracon is a broken piece of pottery. We break pottery. We just throw it away. Flower pot falls off a table. We just sweep it up and throw everything away. In ancient times, you did not do that. What you would do is you would keep the little pieces. Well, you would keep the big pieces, little pieces you discard, but the bigger pieces you would keep and like keep a a container of them what they were for the original post-it notes you would write on these things if you're a storekeeper someone comes in to buy say a couple of gallons of olive oil say they need a receipt you didn't use papyrus that was too expensive in ancient times what they would use is they would use broken pieces of pottery also if you're going to write a letter you would write a letter on broken pieces of pottery paper's too expensive so Anytime we find broken pieces of pottery, some water cast or some, and it's got writing on it, that's called an ostracon. There have been hundreds and hundreds of these found all through the ancient world. Uh, hundreds alone uh, have been found around the ancient city of Arad, just to the south of Jerusalem. These things are found all around. This one here was discovered, and you can see in the photograph I've got here of this thing, you can see it has writing on it. This is the oldest writing that we know of that actually talks about the temple to the true God, the Israeli God, Yehwah, or Yahweh as a lot of people call it. That's not right, but if we dare use his um, his more uh, common name, Adonai, it's his temple. It was dated back to between the uh, 9th and 7th centuries. This is uh, not long after Solomon, Meirah, Rehoboam, um, Jehoshaphat, in that time period, The temple was standing, and this is talking about it. It's a a little piece of writing describing uh, and mentioning something about the temple in Jerusalem. And that is evidence, again, that we see that the Jews did, in fact, have a temple there. Back in 2012, uh, when I was in Israel and leading a tour, I came across over at one spot. We were at a place called Jezreel. And in Jezreel, um, we're sitting on top of this tell, it's a big hill where they built a city. The tell has not been excavated very much at that time. Now they're doing more work on it. But at the base of the tell, base of the bottom, we're looking over, as I'm sitting here looking out, you can see the Jezreel Valley where they did, uh, they used to raise grapes and stuff in ancient times. Beautiful, huge valley, goes for miles, miles across, miles long. And as we were sitting there, I could see, there was an archaeological dig going down at the base here. Didn't know what it was at first, but as I kept reading on it and researching what these archaeologists were digging, it ended up being, it was Dr. Norma Franklin was the person in charge of the dig, and she found that this is an old, ancient wine press right there at the outside. It would have been outside the city walls right there at the bottom of uh, the tell, right outside the city, and it's... um, it's really interesting. What you're looking at in the picture there, the big like swimming pool area, that's where they put the grapes. They would stomp the grapes. There's a crack in the back. It goes straight to a big circular pool just straight back. And then there's other pools here that they would put wine in and, and contain holes in the ground where they would set pots to put the wine in and, and stuff like this. The thing is, this dates back to the Old Testament time period. Also, not only that... Um, There is a story in 1 Kings chapter 21 and 2 Kings chapter 9 about a guy by the name of Naboth, who Ahab, King Ahab and Jezebel, had murdered so that they could claim his vineyard. And the Bible says it was a vineyard just outside the city wall right there of Jezreel. Dr. Franklin and many others do believe that this is most likely, it's the only one found around there, and the Bible describes it being a big... Uh, A big one, the king wanted it. It was really nice and stuff. And they believe this is most likely Naboth's vineyard and and wine press, that this is where that story takes place and stuff. And it fits the biblical description of where the Bible says this thing would have been. And if you study uh, those passages there carefully, you get an idea of where this sat. It was on the northeast side of the city. And that's right where they found this thing. Another thing that they found, they found jewelry, one piece of jewelry that um, we have some that we talk about on our website, but this one here is a bulla. Um, the, The bulla is the little round thing that's there by itself, the clay, and then you can see there's a bronze ring. Both of these have writing on it. A bulla is how you sent letters. If you wrote like papyrus, you would r- fold up the papyrus, put a string around it and some soft clay into the string, and then you would take your ring or your signet sign and you would stamp it into the clay. It dries and then you mail it. And you know when you get a letter, if it's been opened or not, because the string and the, that clay piece would be broke off. Those clay pieces are called bulla. And this is a bulla and you can see there's writing on it. Now, this bullet was discovered in Jerusalem in 1991 and has the name of a high priest actually on it. And it dates, um, it, it just so happens, the name on here is the high priest that is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 22, the same guy. And this has been dated, the style of the writing, and because this is clay, it it's, uh, can be tested with carbon-14 and other methods, and it comes out to be the same time period, and it dates to that. And then they found a ring in 1980, um, this brown, uh, bronze r- uh, ring here you can see, and it was discovered, and it has that name of the priest, same guy, and actually his son. Both these guys are mentioned in those passages in the Bible. It's so cool that they have found, these people really did live. You would think of the Bible's making stuff up that the, it would be um, they're not gonna be that concerned about the little minor characters, the little people and stuff that are only mentioned a couple of times. Yet that's where we're finding a lot of evidence. I mean, people have never heard of Hilkiah most of the time. Most people have no idea who it was. Here's his ring and here's a stamp with his name on it. These things really did exist. And last night I was talking about, to you about how the Israelites, after the temple would be destroyed, Isaiah says the temple and the city will be destroyed, but a guy will be born. Uh, in the future. It was about 150 years later. A guy by the name of Cyrus, who will be the king of the of the Persians, and he will allow the city to be rebuilt. I talked about this last night. This is a picture of that cylinder that I was telling you about that has the history of it and how Cyrus did allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild their city, and rebuild their temple. And it's called the Cyrus Cylinder. And that's a library book. It's uh, We have a uh, on our website, you can see it. I have one sitting in my study, a copy of it, a museum copy, because all these things are in museums. But it's about so long, it's about this big around. And you would roll this over soft clay. It's written in a negative form, so it makes an impression, and then you can read it, and that's what's on there. Or when we were just in Jerusalem, um, Charlotte, I think, took this picture, and we um, walked over on, uh, by the, uh, very close to where the temple was. This is the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda is very famous because in John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man here who has been lame for a long time. And it is right where the description that we see from the Bible about where this pool should be, they have found it. It's about 75 feet underground that they have excavated out. You can see how they've done this. And you'll notice it's sort of green. There's no water much in there right now. But you can see the steps that came down into the pool. The rest of it is still underground, but you can see where this pool actually sat. This, true, this is a true place, it's real. And also we went down and um, we uh, have a picture here. Actually, I think I took this picture a long time ago. Um, in 2004, a sewage pipe broke in the uh, city of David southern part of the city of Jerusalem. And as the pressure and stuff from the sewage pipe broke, water and other stuff was flowing through the the mud, the brick, the debris, the sand, and it was just cutting out, uh, uh, like eroding sections away. And as they were trying to fix this thing very quickly, they soon noticed stone steps were forming. And they're like, what in the world is this? Immediately they ran up and they got two archeologists that were working just a little bit ways up and on a different site at the Gihon Spring. Ronnie Reich was one of them, it was his name. He came running down there and they said, what do you think this is? And he's watching as the water is washing us away and you see the stone steps. Um, Ronnie was standing at the opposite end where this picture is and he was standing there and he's looking at the water just cutting away uh, the debris and it's revealing these stone steps going down. And he says, oh my gosh, this is a pool. And the pool that is supposed to be located at the end of hezekiah's tunnel which is just about where i took this picture standing there he says that is the pool of siloam which again is mentioned in scripture it's in John chapter 9. That's where Jesus heals a blind man. He puts mud in the face, tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam was often used too in many of the, the holidays um, for the temple, the second temple period. They used it um, for many of the holidays to come down and get water because it was clean water, running water, living water that could be used uh, for ceremonial purposes. It wasn't stagnant water and coming out of Hezekiah's tunnel. That has been found. But one of the most Amazing, and I'll end on this one. One of the most amazing discoveries people often ask, and I've been asked on this trip already by someone, how accurate is our scripture? How accurate is the Bible? Um, if one of the most accurate translations that you can get hold of is the New American Standard. Also, and if you get the 1977 edition, it's probably a little bit more accurate than more, um, the newest ones. Um, but that is one of the most accurate. Another one is the Interlinear Bible. Interlinear Bible, I know most people have never heard of it. It's, the, it's actually in Greek and Hebrew and Chaldean. It goes back to, it's a copy of the oldest manuscript we have directly, and you can read the Greek, the Hebrew, and stuff. If you can read Greek and Hebrew, you can read this thing so i have one i use this frequently it's one of my primary study bibles that i use and the thing is um this is a word you know those bibles like a new american standard and interlinear they're word for word what the translators did is they took the oldest manuscripts copies the oldest manuscripts compared them then looked at each word individually and tried to see what is the closest english equivalent Uh, in the New American Standard, what's the closest English equivalent to that word and meaning? And that's what they put together. So it's a very accurate translation. Another very popular translation is the NIV or the NLT. They are thought for thought translations. They don't go individually by words. They take a whole sentence or um, a couple of sentences. What's God trying to tell us? Let's put it into English and do that. That's a different way of translating. This is going word by word. Sometimes they're a little harder to read. They're more of a collegiate reading level. But how accurate are they? Well, in the year uh, 1970, as I told you last night, Israel is reclaiming the desert and building gardens out in the desert with drip irrigation that they're putting in. They were down by the Dead Sea at a place called En Gedi, which is where David used to hide. Um, There's caves all around there. Matter of fact, uh, this is where in the Bible, if you know the story, King Saul, who was chasing David, goes into a cave to go to the bathroom. It happens to be the cave that David's hiding in. That's the area where this is at. It's just desert all around uh, with a bunch of caves, cliffs all around and stuff like this. Well, they were digging to put pipes in to plant a date palm area uh, for dates. And as they were digging down, as they were digging, they hit a mosaic floor. Beautiful, original mosaic floor. It's huge. It's probably, I'm just gonna guess here, I'm gonna guess it's about... um, say, 30 feet across by about maybe 60 feet long. This is a big big building, it was. It had been burned, it had been destroyed. The thing is, there's no, nobody knew anything about this being, being there. It was a major discovery, archeologists came in, they excavated the place, you can go there, I love to take people there now. Um, but what they found, it was a synagogue, a place where they, they score, uh, stored scripture and they studied scripture. It dates back to just after the time of the apostles. Somewhere, well, at least the burning um, took place because we can date stuff with the, of, that was burned um, and test that and there were com- some coins and stuff found that, took, um, that showed that it was around in the second century. So um, this is after Christ. But the thing is, it was a Jewish synagogue. In Jewish synagogues, there is a room near the opening called, basically it's called in English, the Torah Closet. Uh, or the Torah Ark, that's where they kept the scrolls. As they were excavating this out and digging out the sand and rubble, exposing this beautiful ancient synagogue, it even has names and pictures in the uh, the mosaic. It's absolutely gorgeous. And as they were doing this, they found a burnt scroll. That's the actual photograph of it. It's about as wide as this book is that you have in your hands. It's only like that wide. It looks like a burnt piece of wood. And what they did, they found this in 1970s. They knew it was a scroll, but it's a burnt rolled up scroll. They didn't know how to unroll it without destroying it. So wisely, they put it in a shoebox full of cotton and stuck it in a museum and just put it in storage. Well, just a few years ago in 2015, they took it out because now the technology exists, being able to read it through different types of photography and using infrared lights and stuff like this. They can, and it's like a CT, they can actually, uh, photograph through the thing every mila um, in micrometers uh, meters, and actually they could see the writing in there and then it was like a jigsaw puzzle taking all the pictures and putting it together what they found out this is it's the book of Leviticus now how accurate is it we this is a two this this thing is over 800 1800 years old take a look at what's written here matter of fact Smithsonian in uh, Smithsonian Magazine did an article on it in 2015 about when they opened this thing up and well, they, they photographed it to read it. And Smithsonian even agrees. And that's not a Christian publication. Even Smithsonian says, compared to a New American Standard Bible, a word-for-word translation, it is exactly the same thing. Even the paragraphs, the uh, indentions for paragraphs, the paragraphs starting is exactly as a New American Standard to this or to the interlinear Bible, is this. Thus, if you read this thing and you read the New American Standard, what they found out, you're reading the same material. This thing's 1,800, at least 1,800 years old. We know it was burned around 1,800 years ago. We don't know how old it was before that, but that's when it was burned. We see that this thing is accurate. Now, we don't have time to go through a whole lot more here, but that is showing you Just a little piece, just a a little smidgen of archaeological evidence that shows that our Bible is not only accurate, I believe our Bible is true. As I said at the beginning, there has never been even one provable archaeological discovery that disproves the Bible. Tens of thousands and more are being found almost every week there in the Holy Land showing that the Bible is accurate. That's a pretty pretty good piece of evidence. So I'll close this in prayer here, and I can't remember we're doing announcements or something then next, but we'll do that. Well, let's close this part, and then we'll, we'll do that. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this time we've had here and for these people who are listening. I pray, Lord, that you would just strengthen our faith. Faith comes from you, comes from your word, I'm trying to show here that your word is true. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us to strengthen our faith, that just your word is real. This is not some mythical book. It's not some fairy tale. These things really did happen. These people really did live. And as we've already seen, um, everything that Jesus said came true and is coming true. And he rose again, which shows that he he truly is God and that his word is true and he is the only way For eternal life, which is what he said. So I pray that you just strengthen our faith. And we thank you for the weather we have here tonight, that we can sit out here and do this. And just, Lord, give us a good night's rest. Keep us safe and help us as we continue in our studies down here. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode on the podcast. Now, if you'd like to learn more about the Marine Biology Program, or even become a sponsor yourself for the 2024 trip, you can find out more about this program by clicking the links in the description or visiting evidenceforfaith.org slash marine biology, or click on the events tab on our website. And with that, have a wonderful rest of your day.